stalker that'll go and meet your parents. I'm outside trick-or-treating. If my chick is cheating, I'm hungry as and I hope you are sick of eating. It's like the fourth letter, tenth letter, third letter, chicken hawk, bird getter. Holler if you heard better. I got a chick with no tall. I for the love of that money, not basketball. Yeah. And when my man comes home and the death squad is back, yo, give me that rap game. We'll take charge of that. Could I be right? Could that be kid? to see their faces when they try to stop this baby. a 10-15 curfew here. So what? Well, you're playing your record player. It's well after 10-15. What would happen if everyone stayed up after 10-15 playing the record player? They would love it. They would love it. They would love it. They would love it.
is the old boogie woogie beat superimposed by the rumba and samba beat, beat, beat. And the two beats can hypnotize a young man or woman within 29 minutes so that they can get them to do anything. Hello, you are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and it's a little bit after 4.15 p.m., and we're now going to start a pre-recorded show of Living Writers from October 29th of 2008. Stick around. Good afternoon. Thanks for listening, Ann Arbor. You've got WCBN-FM Ann Arbor Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy to have Nicholas Delbanco here, here on the on the show. Um, may I call you Nick? You may. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. <laughs> um, and by way of introduction, although I think of all people, you probably need no yeah. introduction. Um, I'll read. Uh, we're going to be talking at, about uh, Nick's latest novel, The Count of Concord, um, out with uh, Dalkey Del- Del- Archive Press. Um, and, and a little bit later in the program, Nick will, will read um, a section for us so we can, can, and can have a, a, an example. And good news to everyone listening. Tomorrow, Nick will be reading at Rackham, the amphitheater, at 5 p.m. In the, in the lovely green room. You're probably no stranger to that room, too, either, Nick. I've been Be- there behind, once or 700 times. Yeah, yes, behind the mic, uh, especially. Right. <laughs> um, okay, without further ado... Nicholas Delbanco is a British-born American who received his B.A. from Harvard and his M.A. from Columbia University. He currently directs the Hopwood Awards program and is the Robert Frost Distinguished University Professor of English at the University of Michigan. An editor and author of more than 20 books, Delbanco has received numerous awards, among them a Guggenheim Fellowship and two writing fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts. Thanks for being here, Nick. I'm delighted to be here and glad for the chance to uh, figure out before I read from it tomorrow what my novel is about. (laughs) All right. Will there be a question and answer sort of session following then? I'm not sure there will. Uh, Generally, in that particular venue, we give most of the time over to the reading of the work itself. But obviously, uh, anyone who wants to ask me about the matters that we will hereafter discuss will be welcome to do so. At any time or there? At any time. <laughs> time. <laughs> grocery store lines, exactly. traffic State, lights. State uh, Street. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. When you're next in line for a coffee, right. you might get the chance. Well, that actually reminds me of how I first, when I first heard you read, Nick, which was several years ago now, maybe 2000. Five and um, and you were reading when the new crop of MFAs were going to come, and you read read with Khaled, and and I think you were reading about um, uh, it wasn't from the Count of Concord. You are so prolific, so your current project was dealing. It it was more it was nonfiction, and it was dealing with James Baldwin. 
yes, actually. I loved uh, it, just in time. <laughs> thank you. I, in fact, that did come from my last book, which was a collection of essays called Anywhere Out of the World. I tend to zigzag or or vary uh, the work in part because by now there does seem to have been a disconcerting amount of it. And so I, I do a nonfiction book and then a fiction and then a nonfiction, et cetera. Is it something and so that you're within those projects? It's not as if you have them going concurrently? It's or, pretty or? much within the projects. I mean, one is always dreaming of uh, the next book or... Um, trying to remedy the mistakes of the last uh, while one is working on on the present. But I tend to work mostly on um, one project at a time, even if I know what the next project will consist of. This, by the way, is is a violation of... of this is the exception, isn't it? This is it? very much the exception to that rule. I've been working on this novel on and off for... Oh, gosh, 22 or 23 years, and in all simple bitterness, I think it's fair to say that I won't do that sort of thing again. <laughs> um, so I would pick it up and, and work hard at it uh, and exclusively at it, and then I would butt my head against a wall and, and, and throw it down and turn to something else and even in some period wait for a period of years before I resumed the tackling of this task, which is a large one. What was but, it but that you, kept bringing you back to it? What was, was it this uh, truly a story that you felt uh, that needed to be told, someone that we didn't know? almost as if In some ways, I, uh, that is part of it. I, I do find this particular man a fascinating figure uh, from our actual history. Uh, and... Um, Maybe I'll talk about that in a minute because I haven't yet gotten around to answering your first question, which was... Well, I should give you a chance to. <laughs> um, I was reading from an essay called, Unhappily Enough, The Dead, and remembering old friends and colleagues and writers I much admired and, and knew quite well. And if I remember correctly, when I first met you, I was celebrating the memory both of James Baldwin with whom I was very close a very long time ago, and a near neighbor in the south of France, and uh, John Gardner, who died a little more recently. Um, but uh, I did that as a way of, peculiar enough, it seems to me, in retrospect, of, of making uh, new students welcome, of reminding them that, uh, um, you know, there had been other authors before. And... Uh, so that's what I was reading from, a, a, a recollection of, a remembrance of uh, the wonderful James Baldwin, who seems somehow to have tricked time and to be at least as consequential yes. these days and during this election as, uh, as he was a decade ago. Yes. So about the, the Count of Concord himself, uh, uh, he was, his, his name is Benjamin Thompson. And he was born in, in Woburn, Massachusetts in, in 1753. He died in, in the outskirts of Paris in 1814. And um, in the period of his lifetime, he was, I think it's fair to say, world famous. He was terrifically well known, particularly in Europe, um, to which he decamped uh, during the Revolutionary War. Um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said of him uh, that there are three great minds that America has produced. Uh, 
two of them you'll, you will have heard of and know a great deal about. Uh, one is uh, Thomas Jefferson, the other is Benjamin Franklin. And then there's this fellow, Benjamin Thompson, of whom you haven't heard or hadn't heard before. Uh, well, is I, that what is that how you found him, Nick? Was it this quote where you thought, "Well, how do I know know this third person as well as"? No, I found him in a in a much um, less dignified and, and research based fashion many years ago, um, before uh, we came to this town. Um, my wife and I owned and, and lived in um, an old farmhouse in upstate New York. Uh, oh, that sounds but, lovely. Uh, it, it was a beautiful house. It was an early 19th century house with a lot of fireplaces and stoves that we used mostly to keep warm. How many books um, did you write there, Nick? Because uh, that sounds a, like a writing house. It was a writing house, and, and it was a place I, I loved. Um, but we had one fireplace that simply didn't function. I mean, it was beautiful. It, it was tall and elegant and, and, and narrow and um, uh, acutely faced. But I couldn't get it to work. Uh, every time I lit a log, it sputtered and went out. Or it, if it stayed um, uh, a light, the smoke poured into the room. So finally, I just said, the hell with it, and, um, <laughs> and used the wood stoves and the other fireplaces, and that was fine. And one day, a friend who, who knew something uh, walked in and said, my God, he said, you've got a Rumford fireplace. And he pointed to the thing. And I said, well, that's very nice, but it doesn't work. And he said, well, you've <laughs> a got lot a, of good it does. <laughs> said, a lot of good it does me. And he said, I said, he said, you've got a Rumford fireplace. And he repeated himself. And I said, repeating myself, that doesn't work. And he stood the logs upright, making a little teepee of them and lit a piece of paper underneath, and hey presto, everything was heat. And it began to produce about four or five times the heat of any of the other fireplaces in the So house. even more efficient, more... <laughs> and it turns out that among his other attainments, this fellow, Benjamin Thompson, who became Count Rumford, in a way I'll be happy to discuss, um, really pretty much invented the modern fireplace. He invented uh, the smoke shelf. And uh, before that, it basically had been a straight-up, you know, cylinder. And when the wind went wrong, the ash came out and covered uh, your furniture and uh, extinguished itself. So he invented uh, pretty much what we think of as the, rum as the modern fireplace. And the Rumford fireplace is still, to certain discerning collectors, something to be treasured. So I learned that, and I thought that was interesting, and that's how I came across his name. And then a few years later, another friend who was a nuclear physicist said that Count Rumford had been the father of nuclear physics. And I... Oh, jeez. So he presents um, himself again, then. <coughs> in part because of his... <clears throat> excuse me, as you can tell, um, my voice isn't always this low. Um, I've caught the seasonal uh, <coughs> coughing... Um, Thanks for true. still being a good sport and coming in. <laughs> okay. Well, and I promise to have uh, have gotten entirely over it by by tomorrow's reading. For the reading, uh, that, that I'll remedy. <laughs> anyway, this fellow said Rumford understood the nature of heat transmission, which is true and is the basis of his reputation amongst scientists. And in a certain way, though I'm not as convinced of this, he could be understood as the precursor of the father of nuclear physics. Anyway, those two things caused his name to be one I, I knew. 
And then someone said, oh, but he was a rake and a rambling man, and, and not to put too fine a point upon it, a son of a bitch. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. And, <laughs> the and, and, and the plot here. thickened, and I commenced my researches. And uh, really, this is more than 20 years ago, fell under his spell. So back to my earlier point about Roosevelt's admiration, he said uh, the three great minds that America produced um, include this man. And the reason that you have not heard of him is because he picked the wrong side during the Revolutionary War. He was a Tory. And My students were aghast at this today when I mentioned it to them. Ah, well, I said he was so smart, but he made one mistake. <laughs> you know, it's a mistake uh, only perhaps in retrospect. Um, and a full 30% of the American populace didn't think that the revolution was a good idea. Um, I am, as, as you pointed out, um, though very much an American now. I was born and, and to a degree raised in England, and I can remember... Um, the first years when I was over here at school, sort of wishing that Cornwallis had snookered Washington at Saratoga Springs and not the other way around, and thinking of you, if you'll forgive myself saying, as a rude colonial and refusing to pledge the count, uh, allegiance because somebody had made a terrible mistake uh, oh, in that battle. Oh, I my, my mom is listening <laughs> in Florida because, Nick, she's from England. Ah, and so well, she's well always then she'll like, have had some of that. Yeah, the 4th of July, that's your holiday. <laughs> Anyway, um, many well-intentioned people really did believe in uh, remaining British subjects, and I don't think uh, he would have been unforgiven if that's all he'd done. But he was a spy as well. There is that. He was a spy. Yes, he was. A, uh, um, and a, <laughs> of course and, he was, right? <laughs> we could expect nothing less from him at this Well, point. one of the things he invented, and we have actually an example of it in, in the spectacular Clements Library here, um, was disappearing ink. Uh, he wrote his dispatches in, in invisible ink. And um, you're serious. You're I not am serious. My leg. I'm serious. And he was um, an informer to General Gage as early as the Battle of Bunker Hill. Um, again, I, I think it's fair to say that the only reason we've heard of Benedict Arnold is because we caught and killed him, uh, and mm -hmm. so we celebrate uh, um, the fact that we that we caught that traitor. This particular traitor got away and spent the rest of his life in Europe, where he is, in fact, very famous. Mm -hmm. But in America, he's hardly known at all. Well, let's, let's take a break, Nick, and we'll come back. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. Uh, today, Nicholas Delbanco, his latest novel, The Count of Concord. We'll be back. Our boots and clothes are all in pawn. Yes, flame and drafty round Cape Horn. She said to me, Hey, dear, a son come home from sea. Must go. Get down, your blood red roses. Get down. Touch 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM. Today on the program, Nicholas Delbanco, uh, The Count of Concord. This novel, Nick was just telling us, is a, a long time coming. Yeah. Um, it's, it's sort of a, a wonderful thing to be fascinated for such a large... Then now looking at your life so far, such a chunk of your life, you've mm. spent in some ways with this this person. I wonder how... How has that changed your imaginative life, do you think, Nick? And does he get into other projects somehow on the side? I, I was really more or less literally haunted by him for, for, for years. And even to the... Uh, like our narrator. Like our narrator. Um, even to the extent of renting a house sight unseen on the outer edge of Cape Cod maybe a decade ago and walking in and seeing his portrait um, and saying <laughs> and, and saying to the, the fellow who was renting it to us, my God, you've got a portrait of Count Rumford. I mean, this was not a museum, so there wasn't a little tag explaining that. No. Um, and he said, how do you know? And I told him I recognized him. He said, I am one of his last remaining descendants, uh, last living descendants, and this is a family <laughs> picture. So I, I mean... Had, all unknowing had settled in a house that belonged to one then of the people he left money to. Anyway. You think then you think something else is at work sometimes then in those moments, there right? There is and that. And I, so, I can't use baking powder any longer. Right. Because it comes from a Count Rumford can um, <laughs> or light fires without uh, without honoring him. But you asked me to read, and I'm happy to do so. Um, we were talking uh, earlier about the beginning of his life, which was in. America, uh, and he fled it uh, under coercion in the war as a spy uh, and settled in England. He spent most of his life, in fact, in, in, in Germany, or what is now Germany, and that's where he became a, a, a count of the Holy Roman Empire, and we can talk about that too. Uh, but he died in Napoleon's France um, in 1814, and I thought I would simply read uh, the very beginning of the book, which is about him in his last year, um, 1814 in Paris. They laughed at him. They watched him pass. Fond mothers drew their sons to the embrasure of the window and, peering, pointed him out. Formidable, they whispered. Extraordinary. It is something to remember and tell your children's children you've seen. Look. Around the corner, rattlingly, the Count appeared. Along the Avenue des Ternes, and stopping to collect his glass beyond the Place des Ternes, around the corner, well concealed and from French spies disguised, the beakers and alembics privately prepared for him, the necks in their tight spirals blown according to his secret and exact specifications, these coded in his assistant's German so that the envious, incompetent, calumniating locals could neither copy nor take the credit. From Boulevard du Bois-le-Prêtre, along the Avenue de Clichy and out at its high gate, from Malzerbe, along the Boulevard des Batignolles, or to the north, Berthier, Bessières, he made his great processional. One coach. The women stared. They smiled and cradled their young sons and kissed them on the cheeks. You must not forget this, darling, what you see. And little Jean or Claude or Michel or Philippe would approach the window, greatly daring, and promise to remember and press a cold nose to the glass. 
they called their daughters also. Come and watch this. Remember, they said. The worldly ones, the eligible, gazed boldly down at his carriage. The modest averted their eyes. No window was unoccupied, no doorway empty where he passed. Old women peered through the fold of the drapes. Old men muttered sagely or shook their powdered heads. Servants caught a glimpse or tried to, jostling for position by the garden wall. The brazen ones braved passage in the street. There his horses thundered. Four white stallions draped in white. They did not require blinders. Their manes and tails were clipped. Air escaping from the matched team's nostrils plumed. Black hooves struck sparks from the cobblestone paving. The coach doors bore his crest. His wheels were thrice the width of wheels on any other equipage, the fellow's broad and stable. This affected to his satisfaction and by his own particular design, while clattering round the corner, in mud or snow, on hill or ice or thoroughfare, his conveyance did not lean. The Count wore white. It is seemlier in winter, he maintained. It gives back the sun's irradiating heat. From head to toe, from cap to boot and cape to glove, he clothed himself entirely in that glacial hue. Both he and his horses advanced. Wherever mad, brilliant, famous, ancient Count Rumford went in that season was a sensation. All Paris observed him. All gaped. He moved as if impervious through clamor and derision and applause and whistling fuss. At times he doffed his cap, then tightened the fur at his neck. For what was extraordinary to the populace was, to the object of their wonder, simplicity itself. He smiled and waved and bowed from the waist, or he paid la foule no notice and drove on. Thank you, Nick. So there we have in the prologue, something to encompass this spirit right. that seems like he would break out of anything. So that's a great... <laughs> it, it, there's a sense with the language that, that it's so compacted that there's layers behind each of the lines are, are already, that there's so much that, almost like a spring. Well, that's uh, that's good of you to say. Um, it is true that it's compacted, and, and if but not look, a compact book, uh, uh, it's a yes, long one. Yes, the miracle of radio doesn't allow people to see it, but it's quite a tough if you were to tote yeah. this around on the bus, it would be... Or you yeah. could, you know, use it uh, in, in, in the event of a fireplace failure. You know, no. it's various hundreds of pages could heat your house. Um, by the way, that just as a small aside, uh, what I'm doing here is historically based and uh, researched. And um, he did invent the broad-based carriage wheel. If you think of the... Uh, uh, earlier um, uh, carriages in, in your mind's eye, they're very, very narrow, and they often tilted. Yeah. So if you make it four or five times as wide, it's not as pretty, uh, but uh, the carriage doesn't fall over into every waiting ditch. Hey, presto, the modern tire. Yes, yes. And they should have, um, the designers should have learned that when they were creating the first SUVs that sort of hovered <laughs> too far above the ground. Exactly too. right. Yes. He was... Um, as I've now several times suggested, a, a real inventor. 
um, more in the in the in the kind of the practical than the theoretical mode. You know that sort of inspired American tinkerer. He invented, for instance, the dripless coffee pot. He invented the Murphy bed. <laughs> he invented any number of things that uh, we now take for granted. The Rumford roaster, which. Uh, which he bitterly complained uh, got known to the populace as, as the Franklin stove, um, and uh, so on and so forth. It seems like he's a man that is is not only he's got that 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 great marriage of not only the intelligence but also the gift to see the opportunities, because you can have one or the other, and 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 it will only get you so far. But he seems to be the person, even in his early life, because it seemed like he decided he didn't want to stay where he was, so he found a person to marry. Right. Precisely and, so. Oh. Um, you were, in your usual way. Um, generous and silver-tongued when you saw he uh, could wed opportunity to idea. Others would call him an opportunist. Um, and he, um, he was also, uh, by repute, uh, an extremely handsome man. And he basically was uh, another one of the reasons I, of course, found him fascinating and wanted to learn more about him. He was a sexual adventurer. Um, and, well, it seems like uh, nothing was outside his scope of, no, of I th- possibility. I, th- I think he drew the line at, at, at Pomeranians. Uh, um, <laughs> we, certain, well, that's a certain dogs seemed... Uh, um, uh, On the small uh, side. <laughs> <laughs> but he did, yes, he was a farm boy in Woburn, Massachusetts, and his first step, if you want to call it that, up the ladder of success was that he married the richest woman in Concord, New Hampshire, which is why I call him the Count of Concord. Uh, He was 19 at the time, and she was 32. When, um, after uh, some stormy years and a revolution, he he left her, uh, left her with child, um, he uh, was accused in some sense of, you know, having treated her ill. And he said, probably accurately, she married me, not I, her. (laughs) Um, So uh, once she had died in due and proper course, he married an even richer woman in Paris um, who uh, was the widow of the great chemist Lavoisier. That wedding, too, was a catastrophe. Um, But he did tend to improve his social standing, both by marriage and by, um, uh, what do you want to call it, proximity, affinity. He always knew how to distinguish the main from the minor chance. Mm. And he went up um, the ladder of consequence, really, almost uh, unceasingly from from birth to death. I mean, he died a great grandee. Um, To be born a farm boy in Woburn, Massachusetts, and then become a knight of the Holy Roman Empire ain't easy. Um, And maybe I'll interrupt myself and tell a little story which explains his name. He he was known as Count Rumford. And that's because... uh, the village of Concord, New Hampshire, had been Rumford, Massachusetts in the colonial period. Um, this was in the period of time before they quite knew how to draw the borders, the boundaries between the states, the colonies. And after protracted negotiation, uh, the, the citizens of New Hampshire and, and those of Massachusetts sort of agreed to draw the line on the Merrimack River. 
and they renamed the village of, of Rumford um, Concord in order to signal the agreement. You know, we're in Concord about this. So when, uh, f this is another story, when the elector of the Holy, uh, Elector Palatine, head of the Holy Roman Empire said, what do you want to call yourself? Because you can do that, give yourself a name. He said, I'll call myself Count Rumford in honor of that which is forgotten. And so in my way, I've attempted, I suppose, to remind people about him. Yes. Yeah. And that you do. That you do. Let's take a short break, and we'll be right back. Today on the show, uh, we've got Nicholas Delbanco, the Count of Concord. Thanks to Alex Sergei also for being the intrepid engineer that he is. Um, we'll be right back. As we lay musing on our bed, so well and warm at ease, we thought upon those lodging beds, for sailors have at sea, oh last Easter day in the morning fair, we was not far from land, we spied a mermaid sitting on a rock, with a comb and a glass in her hand, in her hand, with a comb and a glass in her hand. And first come the boatswain of our ship, with courage stout and bold. Stand fast, stand fast, brave, lively lads. Stand fast, brave hearts of gold. For our gallant ship, she's gone to wreck. She was so lately trimmed. The raging seas have sprung a good. And the salt seas all run in, run in. And the salt seas all run in. And up then spoke our cabin boy. Our oh, well spoke boy was he. I'm sorry for. Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on the program, Nicholas Delbanco with his latest, The Count of Concord. Um, you can go and hear more tomorrow at the Rackham Amphitheater um, at 5 o'clock. So that will be 5 o'clock, and Nicholas Delbanco will be reading from the Count of Concord. Have you figured out what you're going to read yet, Nick, or is that sort of a kind of a secret? <laughs> um, I think I, I do know. Um, it will be a, a whole chapter as opposed to the brief prologue that I, I just read. Um, it's a problem, this book, uh, to read from, uh, partly because it does attempt to emulate the 18th century habit of um, being episodic. So, um, I mean, his life was a series of episodes and a series of adventures, and it would be very difficult to give a sense of the whole. In other words, aside from the fact that it's 500 pages long and he lived for 60, uh, as they say, jam-packed, action-filled years, um, I don't think I could really uh, do any kind of justice to the arc of, of, of the life lived. So uh, in my uh, readings, um, I've tended to just take a single episode and and allow it to 
have its own beginning, middle, and end, rather than try and uh, do justice to the entirety of the man's life. So I'm going to read from uh, the passage quite late on in the book uh, about his courtship of um, Madame Lavoisier, the, the widow of the great chemist, um, when he decided that he would move to Paris and that she had the biggest house on the block. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way. Just do a quick scan right. and then you can see where you're going to end up, right? right? right. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the, the narrator, um, Nick, if you wouldn't mind? Because I was I was reading um, an, an interview with you where you said that that was a key. When you discovered this voice, mm. that... That changed sort of how you were looking at. Could you speak about that a little bit? Yes, this is still um, something that interests me uh, about the the making of the novel. I, I told you that I was at it for a good twenty plus years, and that I was having trouble uh, from time to time with it. I mean, uh, I think it's accurate and not boastful to say that you are in the presence of one of the world's leading experts on the life and times of, of Benjamin Thompson, Count Rumford. Oh, without um, a doubt. And I, I knew an enormous amount about him, some of which happily I'm beginning to forget. I mean, I read all his letters, all his essays, which are reprinted in five volumes, um, and uh, an awful lot of background material. Um, and... I really could tell you for all practical purposes what he ate for breakfast on which day of 1773. And uh, So how do you so, even start with so having started, that level of knowledge? Uh, of I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote um, about him. And without getting too technical about it, uh, his, his dates were 1753 to 1814, and he more or less perfectly spans the... Um, the period of the Enlightenment and the commencement of the Romantic period. And what I mean by that in this case is that he was one of those 18th century meliorists like Franklin who figured that he could improve the world by looking out upon it, seeing what was wrong, and proposing a remedy. Um, and he did that endlessly in his dispatches, in his own writings. And though he used the first-person pronoun an awful lot, he, he almost never looked inward uh, for his motivations or his, uh, the sources of his less-than-stellar human behavior. Um, I mean, he went on and on about society, but nothing uh, of any consequence about his individual place therein. Even the letters, Nick? Because Even the letters tend to be um, really uh, outward-facing. The reason I mention this is that with the dawn of the Romantic Age, and he lived an entirely romantic life, um, all that changed. I mean, what artists were interested in and what became central, took stage center, was the sense of self uh, and uh, the inward-facing uh, query, you know, how do I fit in this world? And um, for all practical purposes, that's the sine qua non, the without which nothing of the contemporary novel. You never have a, a, a figure who pays no attention uh, to his face in the mirror, uh, or who would consider, as Thompson did, you know, the most efficient method for shaving. Uh, um, and uh, I needed some self-consciousness, in other words, and I could not 
get it out of the man uh, and stay faithful to uh, the essence of the figure. But is that, that was, so unsettling then? It was, because it was, is that making someone soulless or something? Or it some was way? very unsettling, and I suspect that he was somewhat soulless. Um, and uh, at any rate, he was not modern in the sense that we uh, now construe someone who has anything approximating self-awareness, self-consciousness, uh, inward-facing perception um, to be. And as I said, I, I was stumbling uh, and felt that I had not solved this problem. And then, hey, presto, one day, I think maybe even in the shower, the idea came of a commentator, you know, a, a person who was, knew as much about Rumford as I did, but was allowed to um, deliver opinions. So I invented whole cloth, a, um, a descendant of his, uh, and uh, had her sort of poring over the papers and, and trying to make sense of the life. And why an elderly woman, Nick? Like, why, was it literally, was that, uh, yes, um, why? Two reasons. Uh, partly I wanted her to be in almost every important way uh, the opposite of the young man uh, that uh, we meet at Story's True Start. And partly because he did have a daughter. He had uh, quite a few illegitimate children, but only one uh, legitimate daughter called Sally. Um, of this uh, rich widow, uh, with this rich widow in, in, in Concord, of whom we've spoken. Um, uh, here's another thing I learned early on, which was another reason that I fell in love with the prospect of telling the story of his life. When his daughter, Sally, um, uh, the Countess of uh, uh, Rumford, died, she had wanted to marry a few times, and he had absolutely forbidden it. He thought that she should just spend her time taking care of him, and anybody who was after her was after her. And as a gold digger, I mean, talk about mirror reflections. <laughs> um, anyway, when she did finally die, uh, childless, um, she left her not inconsiderable fortune to two charities. One was... Uh, let me get the exact wording of this because it's worth reporting. Um, Let's see. Uh, I, I saw that too. Yeah, well, it's, it's, the last, it's the last two, you know, paragraph of the book. To her church, she gave a violin. Yes. To her village school, a length of rope. She had two favorite causes, and she endowed them by bequest. A home for parentless children and the New Hampshire Asylum for the Indigent Insane. <laughs> now, anybody whose bequests are to, para, to charities for parentless children and the New Hampshire Asylum for the Indigent Insane must have had a story to tell, don't you think, and a father to say no thank you to. Um, <laughs> so, I, uh, so I knew I kind of wanted to call my, my witness, uh, my legatee, uh, Sally, when I uh, said to you uh, earlier that we stayed in the house of a descendant of um, Count Rumford, that isn't strictly too, true because his only legitimate child um, was childless. But one of his illegitimate children received some bequests from her and passed on down via friendship and generations, etc., to the walkers uh, that owned the place and, well, 
to which I've just referred. Um, he's left a, a medal to Harvard College, um, uh, a series of discoveries. One of the things which I, I did admire about him was uh, that though he made any number of improvements in the life of the poor, he refused to take out any patents. So he gave his, his inventions uh, out for free, and therefore he didn't die an enormously rich man, but he died uh, well enough fixed to, um, to have those two charities endowed, uh, and his portraits widely disseminated, one of which I've just referred to. That, that is so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Because it seems like a, maybe that's a way that he does have some sort of soul to him, that it was like these, this belief in ideas, and as you said earlier, the improvement, like having feeling empowered to improve the world around you, and that's your, your gift or your... Absolutely. I mean, he, was, he was a social climber of the, of, of the worst sort. Um, he really loved to live near royalty and, and gloried in his titles and ribbons and so on and so forth. And cavorted but, with, like, for example, bo bo anyone, uh, like both, both couples yes. in the royal, <laughs> yes. his royal proximity. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the more royal, uh, the better. Um, that's absolutely right. But... Uh, but I think there was an inner essential decency to the guy. I mean, he really did want to improve the lot of the poor. Um, the problem for him was that he had been poor himself. Uh, and uh, he couldn't quite square that. It's, it's a very interesting, it's, it's a characteristically American issue, actually, this story about, you know, um, raising yourself up from your bootstraps by main force, by ingenuity, by uh, ambition, assiduity, whatever. And once you uh, get out of uh, that and somebody else is cleaning your boots, sort of kicking the servants uh, and saying, no, uh, now I belong to the upper stratum of society. He didn't do that. He stayed uh, in touch with his roots or wanted to. And... Uh, disseminated, as I said, his inventions for the for the benefit of the poor. Yes, I think there was one line towards the end, too, where um, I think he's died. This is, um, when Sally arrived, he was dead. She did not believe it at first. The woman, his housekeeper, wept, but she was often tearful. She had been taught discourtesy and had grown too familiar with the Count and had, Sally knew, presumed. What that means is she's the mother of his illegitimate child. Uh, <laughs> That's with... a nice way of, I like that, presumed. Right. <laughs> um, Yes. Well, well, Too familiar with the count, indeed. <laughs> exactly. There are ways of putting things and ways of putting things, aren't they? And so it's interesting, with this, with historical fiction, that's, that's the language you inhabit as well. Exactly right. Uh, and uh, I'm happy you, you referred to that. The, the section, that was another reason why I wanted a kind of counterpoint. Um, uh, I read to you earlier in our shared session... Um, the story of, you know, uh, Count Rumford clattering through Paris. And the immediate next page begins with Sally saying, or that, at any rate, is how I imagine it. Um, an old man in the avenue, the carriage and horses, and perfectly white clothing, uh, you know. It, that's much more natural discourse. So the counterpoint between those two forms of, uh, dis of diction mattered to me. I wanted her to be undercutting um, the rich, 
bonanza of, of language that attaches to the 18th century. And in some ways, that's how the Count also, he was living his life undercutting yep. something, even what he was inhabiting. So it's kind of... Uh, uh, I'm not quite sure why I'm thinking of this, um, though it seems useful as an image. Uh, in the old days in Vermont, when you sort of made maple syrup, you had these cauldrons of, of sap, you know, bubbling up and bubbling up and being sweet and um, excessive. And people would um, string fat uh, at a certain, uh, oh, maybe six inches above uh, above the cauldron. And as soon as the bubbling got too high, it would hit that and would go back down, um, the way cooks do to uh, to reduce the the boiling uh, of uh, of a broth. And I needed that after a couple of chapters of, you know, high-toned, uh, highfalutin language all the time. I needed old Sally in New Hampshire. To, <laughs> good old to Sally. <laughs> Although, good, good old Sally, too. She also has so many layers of things that she wants to say, too. Yeah. So it's still, the language remains that um, although in a different diction, still yeah. many things to say. D- d- yeah. Well, there's so much yeah. to say about this man. Well, we'll say a few things more, but let's take a break, Nick. Right. Um, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Oh, it's all the famous Yankee ship to New York she was bound. The captain being an Irishman belonging to Dublin Sound. Hurrah, hurrah for the gals of Dublin Sound. Hurrah for the bonny green flag and the harp without the crown. And when he gazes on that place, that city of renown, it's break away the green virgin and the harp without the crown. Hurrah, hurrah for the gals of Dublin Sound. Hurrah for the bonny green flag and the harp without the crown. It's on the 17th of March we arrived in New York Bay. A captain being an Irishman will celebrate the day. Hurrah, hurrah for the gals of Dublin town. Hurrah for the bonny green flag and the harp without the crown. With the stars and stripes of high aloft and foot from all around. From underneath his monkey got the harp without the crown. Hurrah, hurrah for the gals of Dublin town. Hurrah for the bonnet green flag in the harp without the crown. Now we're bound for Frisco boys and things is running wild. The officers and men that drunk around the decks are piled. Hurrah, hurrah for the gals of Dublin town. Hurrah for the bonnet green flag in the harp without the crown. By tomorrow morning, boys will work without a frown. From board the Shenandoah flies the harp without the crown. Hurrah, hurrah for the gowns of Dublin town. Hurrah for the bunny green flag and the harp without the crown. Sometimes the weather's fine and fair, sometimes it's damn well foul. Sometimes it blows a cape on gale that freezes up your soul. Hurrah, hurrah for the gowns of Dublin town. Hurrah for the bunny green flag and the harp without the crown. Sometimes we work as hard as hell, sometimes the rubber stinks. And not to make a sailor curse or make a bishop blink. Hi, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm pleased to have sitting here in the studio Nick Delbanco. Um, we've been talking about The Count of Concord, his latest novel. Um, 
it, it, we were just in the in the short break while you all were listening to a sea shanty mm-hmm. <laughs> that Alex <laughs> so amazingly found. What doesn't WCBN have, right? <laughs> and it's 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 collections here. Um, just that the, the breadth of your work. Uh, I mean, there's no way that we can the the fiction, the nonfiction, the books that you've edited, so the projects you've steered, uh, the anthologies. Um, a, a couple of those. Uh, there were some questions that I had, but but anytime we want. But I bet the count brings us back. I bet. Right. I bet before we're we're through, the count's gonna he's gonna come back to us. We w- uh, we won't let him escape that easily. <laughs> exactly. Well, he didn't let you escape no, no. <laughs> for near quarter century. But um, I was wondering because you're also you you here at Michigan. You're at the helm of the Hopwood, right. um, which seems like a, a a program that that is also um, you believed in for. a a great, like it's it's been a big big part of your life, I imagine. Um, what are some of the the moments that I don't know that that sort of have been a standout times within that? Because you've been bringing writers in to speak, mm-hmm. it's been recognizing um, new work mm-hmm. from students here mm-hmm. at Michigan. Uh, so it's it's bringing in people who have been working a long time, recognizing them as well as the the new new voices. I don't want to be too sentimental about this because... Uh, Why not? Uh, well, because the Count eschewed uh, uh, sentiment, madam. <laughs> um, but in fact, uh, you know, I'm tilting towards retirement now. I, I don't mean I'm going to stop teaching next year, but I'm, I'm closer to the end of my career than, uh, than to the start of it. And I came to Michigan, in fact, to f- start the uh, the writing program uh, in uh, general, by which I mean the MFA in, in, in writing, that very thing from which you were graduated, ma'am. Um, and uh, the Hopwood had been here before. The Hopwood is indeed the oldest and the best endowed of, of writing prizes, award-conferring programs in the country. It first... Um, was uh, offered in the year 1931. The second Hopwood lecturer, a man called Max Eastman, was astonishingly enough a man I had known um, and knew very well. In fact, he was kind of great white grandfather to me. I I don't mean that we were related by blood, but that he took me in and was, was, was very generous when I was in my 20s and he was in his 80s. He kind of taught me in, in important ways about um, what it meant to live one's life as an artist and in the service of, um, oh, teaching. So when I saw that, I, I thought, my gosh, this is a pretty good working definition of tradition, isn't it? This is called passing on, passing uh, to the next generation, that which was generated. It's a wonderful word. It means both things. It's the beginning of something and and, and the transition towards the next. Um, and in almost always that early recognition, uh, that dear dream has been realized. This program that I began is, uh, is a thoroughly grown and uh, flourishing entity now. 
um, I can step aside, as I have from the directorship of the MFA program, in the total certainty it, it flourishes. Um, and sooner or later, the same will be true of the Hopwood program, uh, which began before me and will continue long after. Um, I'm sounding, as I say, um, uh, sentimental and don't really want to be, because I think this is mostly just something to celebrate, not, uh, uh, not grieve. Um, the University of Michigan has a long and consequential tradition of support for artists. I am the Robert Frost Distinguished University Professor, as you so sweetly said at the program start. Robert Frost was made welcome here um, in... Uh, and his letters are here as well. Some of his letters are here, and he uh, was given a berth as artist long before that sort of thing was commonplace or even uh, uh, in any degree frequent elsewhere. So it seems right to um, to still preside um, on, in Tees and, and in Rackham um, over this, this history of writers uh, who are gathered here. And though by now, uh, as uh, to bring our conversation full circle, you've Alas, reminded me, uh, many of my colleagues are dead and, and gone. Uh, that doesn't mean that the fellowship of, of art um, isn't thriving and enlarging. I mean, Jimmy Baldwin is not somebody with whom I can have a drink tonight, but, um, but he's very much um, in our ambient air. And when you make toast... They can be to him as well, then, of course. Right. Absent friends and, yeah. So, so, Max Eastman, he mm. was a person who you said gave you some formative uh, guidance, and then, and you've also then been close to Jimmy Baldwin, and mm. and that's so the community of writers. Um, what has that, I mean, is it even possible to tell what that's meant to you as a, as an artist and then as, as a human being, is it possible to, to note? Because it seems like that's, that's just, that's normal for you. Like these are just the, the people who populate well, in, your, your days. The making of art, whether it be music, painting, uh, literature, what have you, is almost by definition a solitary occupation. Um, I mean, there are collaborative instances, there are uh, expressions uh, of, uh, and forms of communication that, that require more than um, one at one time. But by and large, it's fair to say that you do this work alone. And though I don't mean to get all, you know, operatic about the solitary nature of the, the, the writer's life, and though I've been immensely fortunate to share mine um, with, for openers, my wife and, and family, and, uh, and then with a large circle of friends, um, it is nonetheless the case that, you know, nobody else wrote The Count of Concord, and that it took me over 20 years. Um, so when you come out of that dark, private, Room, it's lovely to emerge into the light of friendship and and uh, the 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 presence of 
other authors you admire, and I have been lucky enough to have a long list of them. Uh, as I just said, alas, um, uh, a large proportion of them are no longer people I can see except in my Um, and saying and, and saying to the the fellow who was renting it to us, my God, you got a portrait of Count Rumford. I mean, this was not a museum, so there wasn't a little tag explaining that. No. Um, and he said, how do you know? And I told him I recognized him. He said, I am one of his last remaining descendants, uh, last living descendants, and this is a family <laughs> picture. So I, I mean, had all on knowing had settled in a house that belonged to one then of the people th- he left money to. Anyway. You think Then you think something else is at work sometimes then in those moments, right? There is and, that. And I, so, I can't use baking powder any longer no, right. it comes from a Count Rumford can um, or, you know, walk into uh, the space that he no longer inhabits without having a sense of sharing it. And that is true of, as you call them absent friends throughout they're in the energy somehow yes and that's that so the hopwood room and your office that's adjacent Mm -hmm. to it that's the same space that it's been all this time Um, so it's something to count on as well isn't it exactly and and some very elderly folk uh, who won hopwoods you know in the 1930s or 40s will sometimes come in and say oh it hasn't changed at all (laughs) and we're very proud of that exactly (laughs) well the the books the literary magazines are different yes well anything that rotates on a subscription basis is permitted to change but but the walls are still the same deep wood and the chairs though new are old leather (laughs) yes yes well thank you so much for being on the program thank you for having me here too it was wonderful to have this chance to talk with you oh and i've loved and this and thank you for bringing um the count of concord uh back to his american public um so thank, I'm thanks. not sure we can have a retroactive pardon, but uh, but, I, but I would urge it on. <laughs> well, why not? I think you've made a good case here <laughs> and today on the program.